to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree. And I'm Rachel. Today, we have a bit of a mm, partially snarky, partially serious episode because it's Bree's day to talk about something that is very near and dear to many of our hearts, and that is being a semwife. So we should probably start by defining what a semwife is. Yes. Um, Fair enough. uh, Helpful probably for those of us. Well, I've been one, but for those who haven't been one. So semwife is a slang term pretty much used in Lutheran circles to describe um, women whose husbands slash fiancés are seminarians. They attend one of the Concordia seminaries in the United States. And St. Catharines. And Edmonton. There's Canadians. Anyway, sorry. Shout out to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out to America's hat. (laughs) The reason that this is sort of a tongue-in-cheek approach to talking about semwives and conduct and ways to act. It's kind of tongue in cheek because there's really no way to be the perfect sem wife. As much as we may want to mold ourselves to someone else's expectations of us. I totally get what you're driving at, Brie, because as a former sem wife myself, you can say there's no way to be a perfect semwife, but every single one of us is going to try because we're so excited for our husbands to be going down this path toward holy ministry. And so let's be honest, anxious that we are going to screw it up and we want to do everything we can to support him in his journey. And so it leads to a, a little bit of neuroses now and again about being that perfect semwife. Um, right. And well, I'm glad that we're discussing this because I imagine there are people going through it right now. Including me. <laughs> so I will say this is part of me is sort of terrified because maybe this hasn't been made clear. Hopefully it has. But I'm sort of a wild card when it comes to living my life. And so I don't necessarily like ascribe to things and behaviors and characteristics that many people who appreciate tradition, let's call it that, many people who appreciate tradition and a certain level of decorum really (laughs) appreciate. So I, I, you know, we're in our second year, Matt starts classes on the 31st of August and thus far it's, it's been okay. So I have some tips and pointers today for any women out there who whose husband is considering the pastoral ministry. This is also dedicated to all of the current wives of husbands attending Concordia seminaries. And hopefully we can shed a little light on how things are now and maybe pastors' wives who had potentially different experiences can can look ahead and see, okay, this is maybe how things have changed. Maybe things are the same. In any case, I would be very interested in hearing from 
um, the SEM wives and the pastor's wives in our Facebook group. So would love to hear comments, experiences, insight. I personally took some uh, insight from women in my Concord Wives of Concordia Seminary Facebook group. So I'll be sharing some tidbits of wisdom here and there for the rest of the episode. Even if you're not a pastor's wife or a son wife, this is for you because there is not a single woman in the church who does not have a vested interest in supporting pastors, future pastors, and their families and understanding how your actions and expectations shape their lives. Um, Amen. So do not turn this off, even if you don't fall into one of those categories, because this is for you too. So to give you a little bit of background, my husband and I graduated from Concordia, Chicago in 2008. It was his and he graduated from the pre-sem program. It was his intention to enroll in seminary immediately out of college and ended up attending St. Louis his first year. Ultimately, we were not ready. We were, we were not ready for the rigors of seminary. We were not ready for the rigors of ministry. Um, we had sort of this cloistered opinion of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We thought that maybe the things that we didn't agree with in the church, we, you know, we could, we could bring a revolution to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. <laughs> we were going we to make deep changes. We were going to drain the swamp, what, like whatever. Like we were going to be the unsung folk heroes of the LCMS. <laughs> that ain't the case, fam. Like, let me just be honest with you. So rule number one or tip number one, remember when your husband attends seminary, it's not about you. Amen, it's not sister. About you. It's not about him. It's not even about him. It's about using the gifts that God has given him to answer the call, to share the gospel, forgive people of their sins, distribute the sacraments, etc. And you know who does that work? All of it. It ain't it ain't him. Like he's he's the conduit for that. But it's not him who does the work. When my husband wrote his uh, was writing his sermons this year for his homiletics class, leading up probably two weeks leading up to his giving his first sermon at our fieldwork church, like he just le- like layered all of this anxiety upon himself. It was just just heaps of anxiety and wanting to do well and not being afraid to like, he didn't want to be afraid to mess up. And for that probably week leading up to it, sort of senses, sensing his anxiety and seeing it sort of permeate his life. We sort of came up with this coping mechanism of, I would ask him who's doing the work. And he said, Jesus. And so that was kind of our like call and response thing when he was feeling stressed out by this is that it's it's not on him like yes he needs to be formed and cared for as a pastor but at the end of the day he's he's a messenger and for that reason 
for him to feel like it's about him and he needs to act a certain way or be pursue perfection is not it, it, that's not the that's not the objective that you should be you should not be attending seminary to make waves in your synod that's that's not why you should be doing this so really like take a moment to to assess that i think when you're when your husband's considering the ministry know why you're doing it and make sure you're doing it for the right reasons mhm um in a in a related vein is sort of my next my next tip here is to be humble. I'm not going to go into the reasons of why my husband left after uh, his uh, attendance in 2008, 2009, but a lot of it had to do with the, the pride that we were, we were dealing with and we were not ready to swallow that pride, but a lot of the struggle of him deciding to leave came from this inability for us to mature and to sort of submit and allow God to form us. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, be humble, acknowledge who you are in this whole picture. Um, One of, one of the excerpts, one of the pieces of feedback that I got from the St. The Concordia Seminary Wives Facebook group came from Johanna. She said, Being a semwife means you see a lot of different churches and you see them with fresh eyes like a visitor, but you often see the behind the scenes as well. For a church body that has so much in common, it's amazing how unique each congregation is and how diverse your experiences will be as you travel around. It's truly fascinating. When I'm tempted to think, wow, these people are strange, or yeah, I wouldn't do it that way and think too highly of myself, I remember that I am just one member of the body of Christ and they are members too. The eye is pretty different from the ear, but the eye isn't any better than the ear. We all have different gifts. We all have different functions and we all work together toward a common goal. We suffer together. We rejoice together and we will have an eternity together to get used to each other's idiosyncrasies. Um, A lot of wisdom there just to acknowledge that you are who you are. Don't try to be someone you're not and allow yourself to take some direction from the people who know what they're doing. On the flip side of that, not being a seminary wife or a pastor's wife, but having a pastor and also having friends who are some wives, that is something for congregation members to realize and understand too. If you've had a pastor in your congregation for five or 10 years, you're used to doing things a certain way. And then you either get a new pastor or you get a field worker or you have a vicar and they do things slightly differently. They don't preach the same way. They don't interact the same way during Bible study. It's That's probably okay. Unless they're preaching heresy, which is a problem. Yeah. You know, you get to know the person as a person and you, you treat them as a a fellow brother and sister in Christ. And that's super duper duper important that uh, we as congregation members also have to be humble about ourselves and where we're coming from too. And you also, I think, you know, the, the reason for this lack of humility that is, can be a problem, you know, in the lives of not only seminarians, but also church leaders 
it often comes from a good place, a place of idealism, Mm -hmm. where you have this vision for what things could be and you want to make it so. And what that means is that you're willing to trample on people (laughs) to put that vision into practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that even, even the nobler forms of that idealism, sometimes you have to just put the brakes on that and say, go back to point number one. It's not about me. (laughs) I am here to sit at the feet of the apostles during this time and learn all I can, because I'll tell you what, you're going to need it. You're going to need every, there is not a single class in seminary that isn't there for a reason. And you're going to need every hour of field work, every bit of supervision and mentorship you can get your hands on. Don't take any of it for granted and, you know, be ready for just putting your own agenda aside (laughs) while you're learning. (laughs) Absolutely. I think another important quality to have as, as a a seminary wife and a pastor's wife too, I'm sure is allowing flexibility to shape your resilience in your role as, as a sem wife or a pastor's wife. I mean, you're looking at from a traditional route perspective, four years of your husband being instructed. One of those years being just a full immersion of field work and, and, and vicarage. Um, so for me, I, I'm terrified that like a year from now, we may be moving across the country only to come back a year later. So there's a lot of transitions, not only in that third year, but just in general, um, I've heard stories from women who, I mean, they've, they've put their lives on hold basically so that their husband can go to school and be formed as a pastor and enter the ministry, um, which is absolutely a noble thing. And yes, something that, you know, we sign up for when we take our marriage vows is, is we're going to, we're going to support and, and love our husbands. So in that vein, like, any, any sort of like extreme rigidity you have about how you're going to live your life is probably not going to be the best thing for you to have. Sherry, who she's actually, her husband's actually a fourth year field worker at Matt's residential field work church, uh, says this. In reality, the Semwife experience is a whole mix of emotions filled with blessings, but also a lot of stress, sadness and happiness, excitement, joy, nervousness, apprehension, and a whole lot of spiritual warfare. That sounds like the fruits of the spirit from hell, honestly. (laughs) That's really... I feel, so she continues, I feel it is a constant state of transition and a whole lot of learning. You learn to be grateful in small things, whether it's an extra $25 or a box of food, small living spaces. Uh, we get used to the art of saying goodbye. Uh, with those goodbyes comes pretty fun places to vacation. And you really learn to rely on God. I cannot stress enough. It seems it seems trite. It seems empty. It seems meaningless to say. But even through this first year of seminary and going into the second year as, as, as apprehensive as, as we continue to be, 
God's faithfulness continues to present itself perpetually throughout our lives. Um, the people of our congregation are amazing. They are tremendous supporters of Matt's schooling and work, um, whether it's someone just praying for us on a routine basis or giving us words of encouragement. We do have some congregants who help us out financially. And so, you know, the, the people of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod are some of, they, they love their pastors. Like it's evident. Just as an anecdote, someone walked up to my husband when he was working on campus one day last year and handed him a check for a hundred dollars. Like that's, that's the kind of just crazy unconditional love that people feel for seminarians and their pastors. And it, that part of the experience is just so encouraging. And I just, I love that. Um, I love that, that people are willing to just write a check and like hand it to someone they don't like. That's awesome. The, the love that you would have for someone to do that is just, it's beyond, it's beyond comprehension for me personally. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are, there are experiences where you really learn to rely on God because when you have an unexpected medical bill or your car breaks down or whatever, and then you get a $50 grocery gift card in the mail that week, it's like, wow, like this is not, this is not a coincidence, people. And it really does make a difference. I mean, we have never been, I, I think it's safe to say that we've never been poorer in our lives than financially than when we were in seminary, but we always had our needs met. And though we don't talk a lot about miracles as Lutherans, uh, Garrison <laughs> Keeler would probably have some ideas as to why that is. I'll bet you every <laughs> woman who has put a family through seminary if you take her aside and ask her, tell me about your miracles, you know, that there will be moments that she can point to where everything looked like it wasn't going to work. And then God made a way. And it's just an amazing thing to look back on and see how he really does provide for the needs of his people through other people most of the time. Vanessa, who is actually her husband, is in my husband's class, said this. She said, trust God in his calling for you. Take advantage of this wonderful opportunity at the seminary for both you and your husband to grow in your faith, trusting in this experience and humbling ourselves to him, which is it's so true. God's faithfulness shows itself again and again. And as important as humility and flexibility are in this role, something that I would also stress, so we're, we're trying to strike this balance here of, of what it means not to be a perfect stem wife, but like a, a good one, maybe, and a decent one, a passing one, is to know yourself and to be yourself. Remember who you are, remember whose you are, that your identity is not in, you know, being the pickup organist or teaching Sunday school every week because that's the expectation that's been put on you. 
your identity is in Christ. And so allow that to flow out from, from yourself and let that sort of inform how you want to get involved in church. The pastor at my husband's field, one of the pastors at my husband's field work church is constantly reminding me, he says, you know, you're along for the ride, but I mean, you don't, don't feel like you need to be involved in every single thing. And I think that if nothing else is one of the more important things that I would stress to lay people is the perfect sem life doesn't exist. Like if you, if you're interviewing a pastor and their wife doesn't, doesn't play the organ. I know this is like a total straw man or organ man or straw organ or whatever. Um, Don't be looking for superficialities like that. Allow this, the, the wife to, to be who she is outside of that ideal. She's going to have a lot of amazing qualities that, I mean, she's, she's prayed with loved and supported her husband for the last four years of, of just constant change uh, and, you know, f- financial crisis in some cases. So there's got to be something to say for that at the very least, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. It varies from woman to woman. I mean, I've met women who both in seminary and in the ministry who I'm pretty sure dream nightly about ironing clerical shirts that or who mm-hmm. can't imagine a committee meeting happening at church that they weren't there to take notes for. And that's fine. That's great. Yeah. Pastor's wife, some wife is something that they perceive as its own calling actually. Yeah. But then I know lots of women who just happen to fall in love with a man who had a calling to be a pastor. Right. <laughs> and these are, these are the women who are married to pastors And they may or may not have a whole lot of interest in volunteering for this, that, and the other thing at church. Uh, They may have their own careers. They may have their own interests. But one thing they do share is, you know, a a passionate love for Christ and for his church and, and a deep and abiding love for their husbands and a desire to support them in that work. And I'll tell you the truth. I have been both of those women. And... I go back and forth. <laughs> Dare I ask which one you prefer? Which one do you uh, favor? Let's just say I found greater peace when I told him to let the altar guild iron his vestments. <laughs> yes. Good they answer. Love ironing. <laughs> I don't know how of course, to iron now he's got to iron his own uniforms because, you know, allow flexibility to shape your resilience and all that. Um, yeah, make it work, Ken. You may find yourself uh, enjoying some very interesting transitions in your life, and that's okay. Being on a boat for however long. <laughs> is it fair to say that one of the hardest things about being a pastor's wife slash sem wife is living up to or trying not to live up to other people's expectations of what you're supposed to be? Well, I think. Honestly, from my experience, those expectations live in your mind as much as they live in anybody else's. Occasionally, Mm. you'll meet somebody who obviously has those expectations. I remember, though, when I was coming through seminary with Ken, that we used to joke about the semwife haircut. Is that still a thing, Brie? I don't know what that is. Okay, well, there was one I don't think I have it with my little (laughs) side cut and my undercut. 
then, so, no, sorry. Really funny story. Just really quickly. I think this is, this is hilarious. This yes. Is, this is our, this is our experience in a nutshell is I decided to dye my hair purple. I threw caution to the wind against my better judgment. So I went to the salon on a Friday and I'm like, make it purple, make it an Easter egg. And she did. And then as I was driving home, I was like, I was horrified because I had realized <laughs> that Matt and I had our district interview the next day. <laughs> so we're, we're sitting across the table uh, from Pastor Kevin Golden and Laura Mars with this like vibrant purple hair trying to talk about why my husband has a fitness for being a pastor in the LCMS. So need, no, needless to say, that is not the semwife haircut I think that you're probably <laughs> referring to. Yes. No, it's not. And you know what? I never got that haircut either because I knew uh, you said know yourself. I knew myself. I knew that that haircut didn't suit me and wouldn't suit me. And so I never bothered. Um, I'm going to mix patterns until the day I die. Like I, I don't... know. And that purple hair looked really, really cool. It ruled. It ruled. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But even so, like you hear stories, this guy said that, you know, make sure you know which which of your slacks are the blue slacks and which of your slacks are the black slacks. So like, sew a little thread on the inside that you can tell it's really blue. And I'm sitting there thinking like, bro, who the heck cares? And he said, someone in my congregation gave me a hard time because I was wearing blue pants and a black jacket or some, some, crazy nut. So again, it's like living up to these expectations where it's like, okay, is this what, is this what really matters? Is this what you're really looking for in a pastor or their wife is, do they coordinate? Do they dress well? Do they have yeah. a certain haircut? Like, let's, let's does stop he, thinking about that. Maybe. Does he know. drive a uh, used four door sedan in a neutral color? And does she drive a minivan, you know, with a, uh, yeah, do they do they manage to dress really nicely? But you can tell all their things were acquired at the thrift shop. Do they have kids? Does mm -hmm. she work? What does she do? Is she a teacher? Like, <laughs> yeah, this. like I'm especially in my class. I've I've met quite a few women who are moms, but they're also working moms. They have far less tr quote unquote traditional roles. There's a there's a physical therapist that I know, just uh, there's a nurse. So I think there's a lot more. I feel like there's a lot more diversity in our seminaries now, and there's something about that I think that's really refreshing, and it, I think it shows that you know you're not you don't have to fit a certain mold, you don't have to have a certain job, or look a certain way to succeed and to have a fulfilling ministry and lead a parish. You're very right, Brie, in that if what we're asking of our pastors and their wives, of our seminarians and their wives, is anything other than, will you faithfully give me Jesus? If we're expecting them to dress a certain way, act a certain way, and we care more about that than we care about whether or not they are giving the gospel and living the gospel among us, 
then maybe we need to reevaluate, you know, are we, are we creating an idol out of this perfect pastor image, this perfect semwife idea? It's a, it's a good question to ask. Profound. So here's my question for you guys. I'm hearing this and my church has gone through the call process before. And like, we were, we were curious about the wife of the candidates we were considering to my knowledge, they didn't play any factor in any decision making. Do you do you feel that that churches are actually that it's a common thing for churches to be making decisions based off of the wife? So first of all, I don't know because I haven't I've heard stories, I've heard accounts. We obviously are not in a position to interview for a a parishioner's call at this point. Right. But I think a lot of it is like Rachel said, a lot of it is, is like mental. A lot of it is like psychological. You sort of, you hear these stories and you gather them up and it is such a important thing for someone to be entering the ministry that you don't want to do anything to ruin that. Now, of course, in terms of like interviews and calls and stuff, I, I don't know. Truthfully, at the end of the day, maybe it doesn't matter when it becomes a problem, I think, and maybe Rachel can speak to this is once you're out in a parish with your husband, what do you do when the congregation sort of sees you as a proxy to communicate to your husband, for example? Oh Um, yeah, that's tough. I, to answer your question a little bit, there aren't, I'm not aware of good numbers in our synod, but I know that in the broader ecclesiastical community in the United States, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of congregations having certain expectations of that the pastor will be married. In some cases, they want the wife not to work so that they can kind of get a two for one deal, hoping that she'll volunteer in a lot of many and varied ways. In some cases, again, anecdotally, there's an expectation that the wife will have a career so that maybe, maybe, maybe she can help with those uh, insurance costs or whatever. That's anecdotal. What I think there are statistics on, and I wish I had looked this up beforehand, is that churches are less likely to call a single pastor because there is a perception that the wife adds something significant to the equation. So that's where there is there is some statistical. Now, I don't know if that is, you know, caused by the fact that people look at a single pastor and go, what's wrong with him? <laughs> Why wouldn't anyone want to marry him? But I suspect it actually has more to do with the latter, the idea that, the, that a, a pastor's wife really does add something special to the congregation that she's a part of. But with that, of course, comes expectations. Yeah, I think it's just a general stereotype that, oh, a pastor's wife is going to be a teacher or the church secretary or direct the choir or all of these just like typical auxiliary roles that happen in a church when none of that is actually true or maybe even good or even remotely close to her skill set and being able to take people as they are with their own skill sets uh, and what they actually want to do in the church is really important. And mm-hmm. a lot of us probably need a gut check with that if we're being honest with ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think especially these days, like, 
And th- and this goes to my this goes to my next point is love your pastor, pray for your pastor. And if he's married, love your pastor's wife and pray for your pastor's wife too. There's I think there's kind of a significant split right now in terms of in-person worship and mask wearing and you know the coronavirus from what I've heard has brought out the ugliness of of congregations, of church councils, of lay membership. So if you're hearing this right now, you know who you are. I don't know who you are, but don't be mean to your pastor. Don't be mean to your pastor's wife. Don't harass them. <laughs> don't threaten them. Have have some empathy for Pete's sake. Like we're all we're all building this boat downstream. Like just why don't you be flexible for once? Now, Brie, you know that all these people that you're talking to are not actually our listeners because our listeners and our ladies <laughs> are just lovely. That's true. I know that they love their pastors, but I agree there are people out there who can be problematic. And that honestly, that's something that's a frank discussion that Matt and I have to have on a daily basis is is like, okay, you're going to be dealing with people. You're probably going to be dealing with some difficult personalities. Let's be prepared for that. And if we don't end up encountering any of that in our ministry, like let's treat that like a pleasant surprise. Like let's just, let's be good with it. But yeah, I mean, don't, don't be mean. Just period. Don't be mean. Your, your pastor and your pastor's wife are people too. Like That's right. you don't put them up on a pedestal mm-hmm. because they aren't perfect. We Just fall like right none of us are perfect, <laughs> which means they both need our prayers. They both need our love, uh, and lots of it. You're right, Bree. The I've heard some stories from pastors and pastors' wives. The last few months have just been brutal. Yeah, really, really brutal. Absolutely. And and uh, anything you can do to show your pastor and your pastor's wife a little love, do I'm it. sure they would appreciate. So, as as much as we as I admonish you all to pray and love your pray for and love your pastors. I think it's absolutely vital then in your relate in, in my relationship with Matt, it is absolutely critical that I am constantly praying for him, praying for his ministry and loving him. Jessica in this, in the Facebook group, that I'm in for the women of Concordia Seminary, I think really hit it home. Uh, she said that in her in her husband's fieldwork experience, I believe is what she's referring to, is, is this. She said, the wife of my head pastor took a huge burden off my shoulders by telling me to stop worrying about it. She said, your only responsibility as the wife of the pastor is to be the parishioner that loves the pastor the most. That set me free to stop worrying about expectations and start to just live the reality that God has called us to. So I think at at the end of the day, if you're going to focus, if you're going to prioritize any of the things that we've talked about today, definitely like be there for your husband, pray for him constantly. If there is a formula, if there's a biblical formula for any of this, I would point you to 1 Thessalonians 5, 
verses 16 through 17, which is the rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks because that's God's will for us. So that's that's a passage that I that I keep in my back pocket as well when I think about uh, my role as as a sem wife. Of course, beyond that, there are ways for you to keep keep your marriage in check, keep it healthy. I am a significant proponent of uh, marital counseling. My husband and I are in therapy, not necessarily because there's trouble in paradise. You want to be able to relate to each other and maintain a healthy relationship and going to counseling on a routine basis and normalizing that has been a tremendous task for us. Um, it certainly is very helpful to, to do that kind of thing uh, with your spouse. Is that something that the seminary encourages students to do? Or is that something that's it's your own? I know that you feel really strongly about it and really advocate for it. Is that something that seminaries encourage their students and their, you know, the, the families that are enrolled there to, par- to participate in? Or is that more you speaking from your own experience? I don't know if they emphasize that. I believe there are counseling services on campus. I think there's a there's a campus chaplain, at least in St. Louis, I'm aware. There there is a greater emphasis, I think, on like mental and relational health for pastors. I think and their families, I think there have been great strides in that in the last ten years. I think certainly with Matt attending, starting to attend now ten years later, it feels a lot different. It's it's more relational, I think, and more emphasis is put on, okay. Yes, you're a student here, and we will support you in that. But if that means you're going to be pulling a 2.8 GPA because you have to be, you have to give your family some extra attention this semester, I would rather that be the case than your relationship to be in shambles. So even if it's not like blatantly encouraged, I have to believe that they would endorse that kind of activity. Mm-hmm. I know that when we were coming through, it was not, there was more stigma than there ought to have been. There, I think, was a fear that if you as a pastor in training, a seminarian, were to admit vulnerability with regards to your mental health, that it could have adverse effects on your future vocation. And so that was a struggle The other struggle is that so many of the services that are available are for the seminarian and Mm -hmm. that there may not be the same range of services available to the seminarian's wife or to, you know, other members of their family. But as Bria said, our church has made such great strides in undoing the stigma of mental illness and mental health, you know, treatment. And I hope that we continue that work because I think it is so valuable to just take advantage of that and come out of seminary, hopefully emotionally healthier than you went in, which is not always the case, if I'm honest. There are are a variety of ways that I think the, the board of admissions, maybe the, whoever sets up the programming, 
I think they've made strides in their business decisions to make sure that when, kind of like Rachel was saying, when a seminarian graduates and receives his first call, he comes out better than he was emotionally, financially. I mean, that's, that's huge. Just as an aside, my husband reapplied for seminary actually for the first time in 2015 and was his application was was held at first they didn't they were not going to accept him because of these the massive amount of student loan debt that we had at that time um and their reasoning behind that it was i have to respect that decision because there was considerable problems where seminarians and their wives were graduating in into the rigors of ministry with hundreds of thousands of dollars in in student loan debt alone not to mention credit cards car payments ex, just general expenses for the family and they didn't want that to rob the joy of ministry mm-hmm. from them and so mm-hmm. there's i think been a very significant shift in looking at the the sort of holistic picture of the seminarian and his family as mm. people and how do we how do we then treat these people how do we then support these people so that when 4 years later they're ready to rock and roll yeah the church is definitely better off when in seminary uh, men and their families learn how to be well in the holistic sense that involves all of these things, financial, relational, mental health, physical health. I think that's one of the ones that uh, we're starting to deal with now is just all of the, we're we're getting a grasp on some of these things, but there's there's a lot more that we can do as a church body to support men and, and their families through this. It's not, I mean, I haven't been there, so I don't know, but from all of you and all of my friends, it's not easy. And there's nope. so many more things that we can do Absolutely. as a church body to support these families who, who do bring us Jesus on a weekly basis. It's so important. Right. It is extraordinarily stressful. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, totally. It's blessed. Oh, my goodness. It's good. It's a good place to be. Many times I think we wished we could have gone back and done it all over again. But at the same time, so extraordinarily stressful mm-hmm. to have the academic rigors, the transitions, the taking the who the person who's often the breadwinner for the family out of circulation for four years. You know, there's so much stress involved in seminary, but it's such a blessed time. Yeah. I wouldn't have it's given brilliant. it up for the world. And yeah. I wasn't even the primary recipient of it. I mean, <laughs> like I was just on the sidelines. Right. Absolutely. So yeah, you know, in closing, I guess I would say is keep your, keep your relationship with your husband primed, keep your mental health in tip top shape, keep your fit. It's kind of like when we talked about during the body positivity episode is Mm -hmm. take care of yourself, not just mentally, not just emotionally, but physically as well. I mean, part of it is diet, exercise, doing those things together as a couple, as a family, because I think if you, if you were thrown sort of into a situation where it was not the ideal 
parish environment for you, you at least can rely on each other and have sort of this strong partnership together. And that's sort of how you, how you get through it is you have each other. And if nothing else, you got to make that work. I just want to give a shout out to Glenn Nielsen and to remind him that I'm very not excited about Vicarage interviews coming up this year (laughs) as a second year. But if we could get that, uh, Disney World chaplaincy program um, going. <laughs> uh, I would really love to spend Vicarage year ministering out of Cinderella's castle. I would just really just wanted to throw that out there into podcast land. <laughs> Thanks, Bree. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, who are you kidding? You're going to Iowa like everyone else. <laughs> I'm going to reserve my reaction to that because yes. We love our pastors in Iowa. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, seminary wives, pastors wives in the Facebook group, we want to hear your experiences. Uh, we want to hear your advice for those of, of uh, those ladies who are going through now, if you've experienced things and and, uh, and want to share what the, the piece of advice that you would have given yourself uh, when you were a seminary wife. We would love to hear those stories in our Facebook group, The Lutheran Ladies Lounge. You can also... Find all of our podcast episodes at kfuo.org slash Lutheran Ladies Lounge or on your favorite podcasting app. You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree. Wait, no. I'm the perfect semwife. <laughs> I'm glad you are because I sure ain't. <laughs>